It's good to be home. And I'm so glad that Phil was here. What an incredible job he did as we continue in Easter. But we're beginning a, a little three-week series. So I want you to plan to be here over the next three weeks. And this is a series, Dream Dreams, which is examining the book of Joel, which seems strange. And as I was kind of wrestling with God, like, why Joel in the midst of Easter, where we're celebrating resurrection, we're going to go back into the prophets, which can be kind of, uh, you know, repent and turn and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I think it really is as we're moving through the Easter season and we're going to hit Pentecost, one of the main passages that Peter quotes in his sermon on Pentecost is from the book of Joel. And uh, so you're going to see that. Uh, and here it is. We're going to go ahead and preview this. But in the book of Joel, this is what Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so I think this three-week series we're going to, to move through, and then we're going to have a break, and Pastor Joe's going to preach for us while my family goes to see Bailey, my, my oldest nephew, graduate from high school. And uh, then we'll come back and have Family Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. And so I think this is going to really prepare us as we move forward. So if you will, take your Bibles, however you uh, look at the Bible, whether that's in book form or whether it's electronically, you can turn to Joel chapter 1. And uh, we're just hold your finger there because I think before we even start, there's going to be a need for us to to look into this and, and just get a bit of the history before we start with this great little tiny prophetic work. Okay, so let's look at the prophecy of Joel. And one of the first things you need to understand, especially if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, is that a prophet is not a sorcerer. Okay, prophet does not have the time stone. He doesn't turn his hands and go into the future and see things and then return his hands and come back and make a prediction. Okay, that's that's not what a prophet does. Okay, now there are some elements of what prophets have seen. The path that the country or the nation of Israel was on came true and what they were saying, they were on the right on the right path, but it's not about predicting the future. You want to think more of a prophet in the words of like a poet, a someone who uses the power of words to shape the world. In our day and age, you might think of, of uh, someone like John Lennon or Paul McCartney or Bob Dylan or John Foreman or Bono, someone who really shapes the world through just the words that they write. Now, the difference between those guys and someone like the prophet Joel is that God that Joel doesn't use his words, he uses God's words. What he hears from the Lord to speak forth in very poetic and very creative ways to be able to set something new uh, uh, free into the world. And so we want, to, we want to be looking at it. Now, Joel has some unique qualities that are unique to himself, okay? And so we have one of those things, or three things I want us to look at very briefly. It's really not clear when Joel was written. Uh, many of the other prophets will say 
you know, during the reign of King so-and-so. So you can kind of get an idea of where this was taking place. Uh, Joel, it's not one of those things. He just kind of comes out and begins to preach. Most scholars think it's likely in the Ezra-Nehemiah period because the temple is mentioned and Jerusalem is mentioned, but no king is mentioned. And so this is after the exile, and they are coming back into the land and may have been established for a little bit. The next unique thing about Joel is how much of the rest of the Bible he quotes He quotes from Amos, Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, and Exodus, to name a few. And so he has this understanding of Scripture that informs what he is doing. He quotes a lot and weaves them together. He's a great preacher as he begins to look forward. And third, something very unique, is that he never accuses Israel of a specific sin. Lots of the other prophets would talk about idolatry, or you've gone after other gods, or you've gone after other nations, you've placed your trust in alliances with other nations, you've trampled the widow and the orphan, the alien, the poor, the refugee, you've led to the downtrodden, you've participated in economic systems that are, are, are hurting people. The other prophets do this. Joel doesn't do this. So there's something a little unique about Joel. And he takes these scriptures and he weaves them to make sense of his present and his encouraged hope for the future. Now, the other thing that's very important about Joel and some of the other prophets is an understanding of the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh, as it would have been uh, in his in his day and age. And this is a day when God saves the people and confronts evil. So what is this again? This is the day when God what? And? Let's try that one more time. The day of the Lord is a day when God what? And? Good. So we need to understand this. Now, it does sound very apocalyptic, and Joel is going to use some metaphors that we see much later in Revelation. But... We can't start with Revelation or you end up in a very silly place. You really, if you want to understand the day of the Lord, need to start in Genesis. And you need to understand how this develops. And it will actually impact in a major way how you read and understand the book of Revelation. So let's look at Genesis for just a second. You don't need to open your Bibles. I just want to very quickly bring us through here. I promise this series is actually about Joel. But we have to understand this. That in the garden... Human beings were given stewardship of all the earth. They were created in God's image. Look at, at Genesis 1.27. You will see that in the image of God, God created them male and female. And they were, they were asked or invited, covenant relationship, that we would co-create and co-steward and co-rule with God in this earth, on this earth. And this is a beautiful thing. And we, we're, we go on and we read in chapter 2 about a garden that was planted. And God said you could eat from any tree of the garden, including the tree of life. Or it's at least there. The only tree that you're not to eat from is from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So all the others you can. But by the time we get to chapter 3, we realize that human beings decided they would rather determine right and wrong for themselves, then eat from the tree of life that God has planted for their, on their behalf. 
And so we see that this then goes kind of crazy. Right away they start accusing one another. Right away it leads to mistrust. And by one more chapter in, it starts using death as a weapon. As a weapon to intimidate, as a weapon to make someone fearful, as a, as a, as a weapon uh, to ultimately get your own way. And you begin to see this so much so that by chapter 11 of Genesis, you're just 11 chapters into the Bible, and human beings are already building civilizations where we can determine what's right and wrong. We're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven. It's called the Tower of, all you quizzers, what? Babel. What, what, what does Babel sound like? Another nation in the Bible that you hear a lot from? Babylon. Very good. In fact, the Hebrew for Babylon is Babel. And so here's this great civilization that's going to be built. And so God comes in, kind of a mini day of the Lord. It sets up what this understanding of the day of the Lord, which is the day when God does what for the people? Saves them. And does what to evil? Confronts it. Okay. So in this one, in chapter 11, God confronts. And you see, he scatters the people and changes their languages and kind of confuses them. So he confronts evil, but he doesn't have a people yet. But by chapter 12, God decides to choose Abram and Sarai to restore creation. And through this people, God will do this great work. And so that continues on. But by Exodus, a new Babylon has arisen. This one's even meaner and badder. It's called Egypt. And they have determined to to choose what is right and wrong for themselves. And they get it so mixed up that in fact, enslaving people is seen as good for the greater good of the nation. And killing the firstborn male child, or all the male children, I'm sorry, uh, is seen as good in order to preserve the nation out of fear that those Israelites, those slaves, will rise up and overthrow us. So, God visits them. This is the plagues. How many of you have seen the Ten Commandments or something like it? Yeah, you know, the plagues. It's interesting, those plagues are all plays on what Egyptians would place their trust in. Either certain gods and deities, or the Nile itself, which brought them wealth and water and all of those kinds of things. And it begins to turn it back on Egypt. The very thing that they are placing their trust in is the very thing that begins to overthrow them. So much so to the point where they determined right and wrong and were killing the male children. All of a sudden, the final plague, you know, is that... The firstborn of all of Egypt dies. And they are sent out and God, the heart of Pharaoh is changed. They pursue and they have their last instrument of thing that they place their trust in. Their chariots and their military. And they pursue the children, unarmed children of God, into the Red Sea that is parted by God's work. And as they get to the other side with just a God stopped blowing the sea apart, the final thing that the Egyptians put their trust in is overthrown instantly. And we see here Miriam begins to dance and sing and talk about the triumph of the Lord. And this becomes the singing of the day. The day of Yahweh. This is what this means. Where God confronted evil and saved the people. Are you with me? You're with me now. Okay, this is going to be important later on. I just want you to see this. 
We continue on as they move into the promised land. There are other gods, kings, and people. And so Israel longs for God to have another day. Let's get rid of those Canaanites. Let's get rid of those Amalekites. Let's get rid of their gods and their their people. We need another day of the Lord. And so all of a sudden, after many, many, many years, Amos the prophet, not Joel, Amos, comes along. And he starts declaring a new day of the Lord. And you can just hear them. They're all excited. Yes, finally. We've been waiting for this. And Amos beautifully starts talking about those countries or those other peoples that surround Israel. And they're a little farther out. And God's going to come against them. Yes, awesome. And then God circles even a little closer those countries and those people groups that are right around Israel. And we're like, awesome, yeah, we're more concerned about them than those people far away. But then Amos flips the script and says, really, he's been drawing circles tighter and tighter to get us to focus right on Israel itself. He flips the script and Israel has to learn uh, that they are now a part of the evil that God must confront. And they learn a hard truth. And it's a truth that speaks to us even today that it's easier to be excited about God dealing with the sin in them than it is for God to deal with the sin in me. That's hard, isn't it? And Isaiah pulls this all together now in his understanding of the day of the Lord. So let's get back to Joel. Are you ready for Joel now? Okay, good. I think we've set the stage well enough. Hopefully you stayed awake for that. We now move and we want to see what Joel does. Now, Joel, if you've ever walked along a railroad track, you know that there are two streams that, that run parallel, right? Or there are two rails that go on either side that keep the train on the track. And then there are also what that go in between them? I guess we call that the, the ties. And they keep those, those rails perpendicular so they go along. You want to think about that when it comes to Joel, because we're going to look at these, these two rails that he has moving simultaneously through chapter 1 and chapter 2 as he begins to preach this message of hope for Israel that is going to require something of Israel and Judah. And so, let's, uh, let's begin to look at the day of the Lord. One of those streams, or one of those rails, is Joel making sense of the present, of something that's happening now. And then in chapter 2, we'll look at the other rail, which talks about the future, and what God is doing, and what, what is going to be uh, happening in the future. Okay? So let's look at Joel. We finally got to the passage of Scripture. Are you ready to hear it? Alright. Joel chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you, all who lived in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the lo- young locusts have eaten, eat, have left, other locusts have eaten. Say that five times fast. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. 
Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. A mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. This is the Word of God for the people of God. And it may be hard for us, but we still respond, thanks be to God. All righty. What does this mean? How do we get to? We want to jump all the way back and say, when Joel asked that question, has this ever happened in your time or in the time of your ancestors? And the answer to that is, of course, well, yes, it did happen. It happened to Egypt, though. It was the eighth plague. If you don't believe me, go back into Exodus. You can read that. It was the eighth plague. And the locust came down and devoured everything. And then he goes and he says, No, but now we have seen the same thing happen to us. Now this is not Joel trying to manipulate things, but he's saying, Look at what has happened. We need to look at this and question what is going on in this moment. He wants to capture their imagination with something that is right before them that seems a lot like a day of the Lord that happened in the ancient past to Egypt. Is God now beginning to stir something up in us after the exile? Let's really quickly look at the future day of the Lord. This is Joel chapter 2. You can turn over. We're going to kind of be going back and forth between 1 and 2. Let's see if we can uh, hear the word of the Lord here. He says, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Do you see the parallel nature here? Sounds very similar, doesn't it? A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient time, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes, before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry, with the noise Like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the walls. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of His army. His forces are beyond number. And mighty is the army that obeys His commands. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Here, 
Joel begins to do that weaving of that poetry, taking what was happening in the present and weaving it into the future. The locusts begin to kind of morph into an army and you're not sure if he's talking about the locusts now or is he talking about a military might. But as someone who has just gone through exile because of military, you know that this is beginning to stir something in the hearts of the people. What is this all about? I mean, doesn't this seem a little harsh? We haven't even talked about what they got wrong. What, why are we talking about all of this stuff? This seems pretty harsh, Joel. What's going on here? And so I want you to know that what Joel is beginning to craft through this beautiful wordsmithing is for us to understand that whatever you trust in, in place of God, will eventually devour you. Can I say that again? That's really the thrust of what Joel is saying today. Whatever you trust in, in place of God, will eventually devour you. Now, there's a, there's a lot of judgy language here, and so I want to take just a moment to talk about judgment, to make sure we're understanding judgment in a good Hebraic way. So I want to quote from Abraham Heschel, a rabbi, And he talks about this in his book on the prophets. He says, The threat of punishment is one of the most prominent themes of the prophetic orations. Yet the prophets themselves seem to have questioned the effectiveness of punishment. Punishment has three aims. Are you ready? Retribution, deterrent, and reform. But the divine intention, according to the prophets, is not for retribution. Can I say that again? It is not for retribution. That's what the pagan gods do. The intention is rather deterrent, which means to discourage transgression by fear of punishment and reform, which means to repair, to refine, or to make pure by affliction. God's purpose is not to destroy, but to purify. Read that with me. Out loud. Ready? One, two, three. God's purpose is not to destroy, but to purify. We need to realize that when he was preaching about the locusts and calling the people of Israel to say, whatever it is, I haven't named it off specifically, but whatever it is that you trust in that is not God, it will come and devour you like the locust has destroyed our fields and our crops. And he shows this both present and future because Joel's only goal, the only thing he calls people to throughout all of his little short book is to repent. He doesn't talk about new behaviors. He doesn't talk about helping the widow, the alien, the orphan. He doesn't talk about breaking allegiances with other nations. All he calls people to do is to say, whatever it is that I'm trusting in that is not God that will devour me, then I need to repent. And all that means in the Hebrew is the word shuv. It just means to turn around, to turn towards God, to return to God, to move 180. I was going this way and now I'm going back towards God. That is the call and the purpose of Joel. And so he lists out, we go back to that past rail, he lists out these things that are repentant behaviors. He talks about sackcloth and ashes. If you've ever had a tragedy happen to you or you've struggled with an addiction, you know just like sackcloth on your skin is itchy, it just is itchy on the inside, isn't it? 
It just seems to get under your skin and get at you and you're just kind of antsy and you can't seem to figure things out. Ashes kind of showing a symbol of how you feel that I'm about to die here. I'm about to return to the dust. Lamenting and solemn gatherings. That's what we anticipate. Fasting. I know nowadays we think of fasting as a way to prepare ourselves for God. Fasting in that day and age was like, I just can't even eat at this point. I'm so desperate for God. And then, of course, crying out to God. The parallel in the future takes it even further if we jump across to the other side of the rail. And Joel calls out even our ability to fake it when we're repenting. To put on a show. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, Rend your hearts, not your garments. He says it is... It is something that happens deep in your soul. It's not just something you do on the outward by showing, you know, by these signs and weeping and wailing. It is something that God needs to do work on the inside. Rend your heart. Open your heart to what God wants to do. And then he tells them why they should repent. He says, because Yahweh, your God, he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding instead Fast love. Why would you rend your heart or open yourself up to the possibility of change to a God who is not merciful and does not love the way that Yahweh loves? And so Joel repeats, return, repent, come. And then, in both sides of the rails, Joel sets the example. He cries out. He kneels down. He says, to you, O Lord, I cry. In chapter 2, on the other side of the rail, he says, spare your people, O Lord. And he cries out to the God that he has declared is merciful and that they should return to, to let go of what is devouring them. So the question today for us, I know you're waiting to get here. What's your locus? What is devouring you? What have you placed your trust in that is not God and is now devouring, gnawing at you from the inside out? Is it an addiction? Is it something that just seems to say, until I can have that thing or that person or whatever it may be, I just can't settle on the inside. It's just itching on the inside. I just have to have it. I've got to go after it. Is it shame? Is it messages that have told you over and over and over again all your life that you will never be enough? You couldn't possibly be enough. And you just live and wallow in the shame. Is it anger? You may say no, but what about that grudge you're holding against that someone who said something or you perceived they said something to you? Ten years ago and you're still holding on to it. Has anger got a hold of you? What about the secret? Is there something that you know and God knows but no one else knows and it just seems to be gnawing at you from the inside? What about violence? I'm not talking about going and beating people up, although there might be that violence. Maybe maybe your family sees that day in and day out. Maybe your co-workers see that seething through. seems to be the only way you can deal with something. But it could be just violence of thoughts, violence of words, violence of what you put online. What is the violence that you're trusting in? Is it even religiosity? You put on a good show at church. Repent and rip your clothes. You do all the repentant things, you know, that, that Joel has listed. But you've never let your heart be opened up to God's mercy. What is it for you? 
Has it even seemed to take on apocalyptic nature? Does it seem like it's been cosmic in your life? Like it's all consuming for you? There just seems no way out? Or you seem like you're too far gone? That there's, there's nothing you can do to get out of this cycle of violence or addiction or shame or anger? What is consuming you? What is your locus? Because people who know what their locus are, know that they need a day of the Lord. They know that they need a God who will come and will help them to turn around and repent, to deal with evil, even the sin on the inside of their own hearts and rescue them and set their feet on the path that leads to life that only He can give. Maybe it's been so cosmic in your life that you say, I'm too far gone, Pastor Jeff. Well, then I need you to talk. Because whatever your locus is, God wants you to turn and wants you to know that it is not too late for you. No matter how far gone you think you are, God says, you can still return to me. Come and receive the mercy and forgiveness that God calls. If you think you're too far gone, then you need to talk to Nikki Cruz. Nikki Cruz was a gang member in New York City in one of the Puerto Rican gangs. And he was violent beyond violent until there was a preacher who preached the God who loved him. And he found everything he needed in Jesus. And his heart was transformed and he became an apostle to gang members. And he served to to rescue and redeem gang members in the name of God for the rest of his days. Or maybe you need to talk to Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was so wrapped up in political power and thinking the world revolves around who is elected that he took hits for President Nixon and wound up in jail. And it was in jail that he found that God is merciful, that even someone like him could repent and he became a preacher of the good news that God is available to everyone. Maybe you need to talk to Corey Tinboom who was so consumed by anger and rage against the Nazis who had destroyed and killed her family, she somehow got out on a technicality and was able, because God helped her, to even begin to forgive the Nazis who had killed her own family. Maybe you need to talk to John Wesley. John Wesley was so consumed with religiosity that he was run out of the colony of North Carolina. We're going back in the day. He feared for his life and he came back to England. He had hoped to start a revival, but his religiosity got him kicked out of the colonies. And he ended up back in England a broken man and depressed. And yet, even there at a small Bible study, he felt his heart strangely warmed by the good news that God loved even him. And through him and his brother Charles, there was a revival that started in the United Kingdom that has not to this day met its match. God can do that. But today, as we close, I want you to hear about Bashir Muhammad. Bashir Muhammad is a refugee in Turkey. Not Croatia, where we're going, but in Turkey. And Bashir, when he was growing up, his family would say he, he really gravitated to anger. And being raised in a Muslim home, that led to him pursuing some very angry preachers of Islam. Some very extremists. 
And he found himself gravitating towards them and being sucked in so much so that he joined the Nursa Front, which is an Islamic uh, part that was taking place in the war against Syria. And so he was indoctrinated and he knew all the teachings the way it was supposed to be, that they were there to do away with those Christians and those Syrians who were rebelling against God. And he talks about the ways that, that they used torture and destruction To do that, since it's Family Sunday, I'm not going to go into those things. He said, I began to see this. But as the body counts piled up, I began to question what was going on here. And he said, one time on reconnaissance, as I was looking through my binoculars, I saw the enemy. I saw those Syrians doing the exact same thing that we had done to their soldiers. And I said, am I better than them? This led to a crisis for him. He, he came home and he uh, wasn't around his family much. And he got married in the midst of that. And he and his wife were going to be really strict Muslims. But he couldn't go back to the front. And so he decided he would take his wife and they would go to Turkey. His neighbors said that he prayed so loud day in and day out that they would go to him and said, Are you a prophet yet? Because we'd like to get some sleep. But then his wife became ill. And it didn't seem like there was anything the doctors could do. And he prayed as loud as he could and he had his leaders come and and pray. In desperation, he called his brother who had immigrated to Canada. And began to tell his brother what was going on with his wife, who he really did love. And his, his brother said, Oh, brother, You don't know what has happened to me. I have found Jesus. In fact, I'm at a prayer meeting right here, right now. Would you just put the phone up to your wife's ear so we can sing and pray over her? And he resisted. He was like, oh no, those Christians, that's that's against the God I know. But in desperation, as she began to moan, he just put it over against her. And they prayed and they sung and he hung up full of questions. But wouldn't you know it, the next day his wife was better. And so this really began to wrestle inside of him. And so he called his brother and said, is there someone here in Turkey that I could talk to? And his brother found a preacher, an evangelical preacher, part of the Good Shepherd ministry. And he went to him and he began to have dialogue and discussion. And he brought all his comments. And at some point, he just began to say, You know, I feel more welcomed in church than I do in mosque. You know, I feel more at peace when I read the Bible than when I read the Quran. You know, I sense a presence of God when I pray in the name of Jesus than when I pray the prayers that I have been praying since I was a boy. And somewhere in the midst of that, God got a hold of him. Are you ready for this? Let's remember Joel. Let's remember Joel. And after this, your young men and women will dream dreams. And one night, his wife had a dream about, she just says, a biblical figure. She doesn't say who it is. Who divided the waters so that she and her husband could walk through. 
And at the same night, he had a dream. Simple dream. It it will seem silly to you. A dream that Jesus gave him chickpeas. I don't know if he's going to make hummus or what. But because of the dreams, they said, I believe this is, this is what we're called. And they gave their hearts to Jesus. By this time, the author of the story comes around and finds that, that they've started a Bible study. He knows that he's not leaving Turkey. He's not trying to get to one of these other states. He feels God has called him right there to Turkey to just be a witness there, to minister among the people there, to help the people there. And he leads this small group. And he knows that the fundamentalist Islamists are not far away. But he says, you know what? My trust isn't in any of those things. That wound up being a locust. My trust is in God. My trust is there. So what about you, my friends? Joel led by example. He knelt and he cried out to God. I know it's about five minutes after noon. But I just wonder if God has kind of said, hey, that's a locust. It's consuming you from the inside out. I know you may see it as a plague, but if you'll return... We can do this. We, you can see that trust in me is all the trust that you need. I'm going to ask Deb to come and play something for us. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. In just a minute, I want to lead by example. And I'm going to kneel at the altar right over here. And I want to cry out to God. Because I know God still has stuff to work on in me. You know, the prophet never keeps himself out of or herself out of the prophecy. But I also want to cry out on behalf of you. And I just wonder if there are some of you who want to lead by example for your kids. It's Family Sunday. Do you want to come and kneel and cry out to God for the locust that is devouring your life? It doesn't matter what it is. No one's going to ask you. But do you just want to take a moment, maybe just five minutes, to begin your week to acknowledge that there is something gnawing at you from the inside that seems to be destroying your world? And you want to do the simple thing that Joel calls us to, to repent, to return to God and find in God your healing. So we're not going to sing anything. There's just going to be playing. I'm going to kneel. And I would invite anyone who is here in this building during this time to come right now If you just feel like, I want to pray, I want to cry out to God on behalf of yourself or on behalf of the church, on behalf of our city, whatever you want to do. If you need to come, just come right now. Don't hesitate. I've got my spot reserved, but you can come. There is plenty of space. Is it time for us to begin to cry out to God, to say, I, I want you to deal with this locust in my life. Don't let it rob me anymore. I'm going to return to you. I want to learn the ways of life from you. 
Many have come. It looks like there's no more space, but you can turn these front rows because nobody ever sits in them. You can, you can turn those into a place to kneel. If that's where you want to kneel, would you come and just say, I want to cry out. I want to cry out. If that's you, do that. I'm going to kneel and pray and then we'll be dismissed. But come, come. Let this be your opportunity.